0: Father, we've sung of the great truths that your word teaches us. We've sung about the faith, that body of truth that has once for all been handed down to the saints. Lord, in our first hymn, we've sung of who you are as our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the the praise songs, we've sung of the glorious gospel, what our Savior, God the Son, did in becoming a man and living a righteous life in our place and dying in payment for our sins, the sins of all his people, and rising from the dead for their justification. In his resurrection, he was declared to be what he was, righteous, so that we could be declared to be what we are not, righteous, Lord. We are not righteous, but hidden in your Son, we are declared righteous, by his glorious resurrection and we've sung of his coming again that because he's risen from the dead we have a certain hope that he will come again and bring us to be where he himself is so Lord we thank you for reminding us of these truths and we pray you'd continue to remind us of your truth as we come to your word this morning I pray that your spirit would help us in understanding what we read I pray that he would help me in in preaching and teaching what your word says. Lord, help me not to uh, spout on about my own ideas, but only to preach your word, Lord. May that be what is presented here today. And if it's not, may you guard your people from any error that might come out of my mouth. So please bless our time as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be finishing the chapter, Lord willing, today. As you're turning there, I'll read our passage, which is verses 27 through 31. Paul writes in verse 27 of chapter 12, Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you and I show you a still more excellent way. So as I mentioned, we're going to wrap up 1 Corinthians 12 this morning. And you might not remember, but several weeks ago when we first started walking through this chapter, I had mentioned that at some point I would touch on the more miraculous of the spiritual gifts and their relation to the church today. We haven't really done that yet. Uh, but this passage really calls for it, so we're going to get into that a bit in this message. And just to prepare you for that, my goal and what will be said about that is not to try and bully you into a particular conclusion. That is not at all what I'm trying to do this morning. I'm going to speak very pointedly about this passage, but it's for the sake of being clear. It's not for the sake of of bullying or trying to press you where you don't think you should go. But all I ask as we walk through this passage is that you simply be a good Berean. you remember the Bereans? They were those Jews in the city of Berea who were described as what? Noble-minded. And why were they described that way? Because when the Apostle Paul came to the city of Berea and he preached the gospel to them, They didn't just take his word for it. Paul didn't say, I'm an apostle, just accept what I say. No, they went to the scriptures to see if whether or not the things he was teaching were true. And that's what I'm asking you to do today, to not just take my word for it. I'm asking you to examine the scriptures. If what I say is not true to the scriptures, then I encourage you to reject what I say, and I will respect you for that. I want you to know that you ought never to believe something simply based on the authority of some man or some woman saying it. You only are to believe something if the word of God teaches it. You cannot build your faith upon the words of a man. You must build your faith on the word of God. So hopefully that is what is going to be presented this morning. So let's get into this passage. When we come to verse 27, Paul is going to encourage these Corinthian believers that they are to recognize that there is a variety of gifts. There is a variety of gifts. Paul writes, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Here he sums up all that he's been saying throughout this chapter. He said, you, you Corinthians, are Christ's body. So all that he's been saying in chapter 12 about the human body and how it works, how there's one body and many members, and how they fit together, serving one another, looking out for each other, he's saying here in verse 27 that you Corinthians are to apply that to yourselves as the church. You are the body of Christ And how your physical body functions, that is how you, as the spiritual body of Christ, are to function. He says you are Christ's body. And he says that they are individually members of that body. Individually members of that body. Each one of them within that church had a responsibility to all of the other body parts. They had an essential function to perform in the body of Christ. And they were to perform it in service to the other body parts within that body of Christ. They were to exercise their gifts and fulfill their ministries in caring for one another. But the Corinthians had apparently hamstrung their ability to behave as the body of Christ. When we come to chapter 14, it will become apparent that these believers had been overemphasizing one gift in ministry to the exclusion of the other gifts and ministries that the Lord had blessed them with. It will be implied there in that chapter that they had become obsessed with the showy gift of speaking in tongues and that they'd been exercising that gift improperly. They had become obsessed like a boxer who tries to box with only his left arm with his right hand tied behind his back or like a surgeon trying to perform an operation but with mittens on her hands. You can't do it. You can't fight a boxing match or perform an operation unless all of the body parts are involved in that task. But the Corinthians had limited themselves to one in particular and Paul is saying you cannot function as a body that way. So, Paul reminds them in verses 28 to 30 that God has designed for the body of Christ to have many different gifts and many different ministries functioning. Look at verses 28 to 30. Paul says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not the workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? So we have another list here. We've come to a couple different lists as we've worked through this chapter, and these lists are not exhaustive. Paul is making a point with this list. He's, and the point is that the, the gift that you've been given is more than just the gift of tongues. You've been given many different gifts, many different ministries, and to your, you're to be using all of them to function as the body of Christ. In his list here, Paul lists apostles, prophets, and teachers as the first, second, and third gifts or ministries that God appoints in the church. Now, why are they numbered in that way, first, second, and third? And why is it that these are the gifts that are the first, second, and third gifts? What's so special about apostles, prophets, and teachers? Well, it's probably because these three giftings have to do with the structural makeup of the church that these three gifts function in such a way that all the other gifts are operating underneath the umbrella and oversight and within the structuring of these first three gifts. And this becomes clear, especially with regard to apostles and prophets. What are apostles? Well, in the strict sense of the word, apostles were those who had seen the risen Lord Jesus And they had been personally commissioned by him to found the church. And to found the church, to establish the church through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of Christ. And they were commissioned to perform miraculous signs and wonders as an attestation of the gospel message that they were preaching. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. We're going to see this Definition of what an apostle was in the New Testament primary use of the word is. Acts chapter 1 and starting in verse 1. Luke writes The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So there you see, right away, apostles, in this technical sense of the word, are those whom Christ personally has chosen to accomplish a certain mission. Apostle means sent one, and Jesus personally was sending these men out. Verse 3, to these, that is, these apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the the kingdom of God. So it was important that these apostles saw the risen Lord Jesus because part of their testimony in proclaiming the gospel was of what? The resurrection of Jesus. They were to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 in that same chapter, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. They were to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, and part of what they were to receive was power, power to be the witnesses that Christ wanted them to be. And that power will show up in what they are able to perform regarding the sick, regarding those who have died in performing miraculous things in support of the gospel that they were preaching. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. This speaks of the apostleship of Paul. Now Paul didn't accompany Jesus during his three years of ministry, right? He was, as he'll say in 1 Corinthians 15, an apostle born outside of the proper time. The Lord sent him separate from the other ones. He commissioned Paul separate from the first 12. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says that he is a bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart For the gospel of God. Next, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Paul says to those he's writing to Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And notice the credentials that he lays out next. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That was required to be an apostle in this strict use of the word. He says, are you not my work in the Lord? He was the one who founded that church, which was the work of the apostles. Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. Next, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Chapter 15, verses 3 through 9. Paul says, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God next let's go to 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 we're going to see here another feature of what a true apostle was in the technical sense of of the word 2nd Corinthians 12 verse 12 listen to what Paul testifies about himself he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul in this chapter is defending his own ministry as an apostle against false apostles who had crept into the Corinthian church. He's having to defend his ministry and he's saying, listen, you saw with your own eyes what my preaching of the gospel was attended by. It was attended by these miraculous works that the Lord enabled me to do, proving that I am an apostle who has personally been sent by Jesus himself. And then lastly, let's go to the book of Hebrews and chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. Speaking of the gospel, the preacher, the writer of this letter says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, speaking of the old covenant, how will we escape if we neglect, speaking of the new covenant, so great a salvation? After it was the first spoken through the Lord... It was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now, who might that be? The apostles. The ones who walked with Jesus those three years. The ones who saw him crucified. The ones who saw him raised from the dead and ascend into heaven. Verse 4, God also testifying with them. Those same ones that were mentioned in verse 3. Who heard the teaching of Jesus and proclaimed Jesus. God was testifying with them. How was he doing that? Both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So when the apostles were performing mighty signs, it wasn't simply to point to themselves and say, Look at me, wow, how great am I? No, it was, God. it was God's way of testifying through them to the gospel that they were preaching. Because mere men cannot do what those men were doing. God was doing that. Proving that the message that they were preaching was from God. So that's what an apostle is in the technical sense of the word. Back to our list in 1 Corinthians. Verse 28 said that not only has God appointed in the church first apostles, but second, God is appointed and again, we're, we're considering how apostles and prophets function structurally in the church. Prophets were those who, as in the Old Testament, they were mouthpieces for God. They were the ones who would speak God's message to God's people. And these were folks that you encounter in the book of Acts like Agabus and Silas and the, the four daughters of Philip, they were prophets and prophetesses. Now we have no indications, at least what I can see, and check me on this, but we have no indications that the New Testament prophets were of a different quality in terms of the prophecies they gave. We have no indications that they were of a different quality than Old Covenant prophets. They, like the Old Covenant prophets, they were infallible communicators of the word of God. Infallible, inerrant communicators of the word of God. Now those who claim to be prophets today, but who are not 100% accurate 100% of the time, they reveal themselves to be false prophets. Not true prophets in the sense that the scripture speaks of them. We see this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18 Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 20 this is Moses a true prophet revealing what God had told him and relaying it to the people of Israel Deuteronomy 18 verse 20 He says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. That's pretty serious. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. God is saying that is how you can tell, that is how you can discern a false prophet from a true prophet. Now there are no inerrant prophets to be found today. And because of that, those who hold that prophets are still active in the church today are forced to argue that the prophets of the new covenant are of a different quality from those under the Old Covenant. They're forced to argue that New Covenant prophets can have errors mixed in to their messages. But that argument does not accord with Scripture nor does it make sense because the New Covenant is what in every way compared to the Old? What's that B word that the preacher in the book of Hebrews kept repeating throughout that whole letter? The New Covenant is Better. Better in every way. So it makes no sense to say that New Covenant prophets would actually be worse than Old Covenant prophets. That makes no sense. When we come to the Scriptures, the only difference that is made note of between the Old and the New Covenant prophets is in the content of their message. In the Old Covenant, there was something hidden from those prophets. And that is the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. But in the new covenant, under the New Testament, those prophets, God revealed that mystery too. We see this in Ephesians chapter 3. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul lays this out for us very clearly. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me, me as an apostle, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Mystery was something that was hidden, something that was hidden in the Old Testament. Verse 5, this mystery which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now what mystery is this that Paul is talking about? What mystery is this that was not revealed in the Old Covenant, but is revealed in the New? Verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is what was revealed to the New Testament prophets that had not been revealed to the Old. Go a little bit before that to Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 19. Now here's where we get to the structural aspect in the church of apostles and prophets. Verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built, he's speaking here of the church, having been built on the foundation of who? The apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There in verse 20, we find that the apostles and prophets are described as the foundation of the church with Jesus being the cornerstone. Now in this passage... When Paul says the apostles and prophets are the foundation, prophets there is a reference to New Testament prophets. New Testament prophets. And that's made clear by a couple of indications. First, the phrase itself, apostles and prophets. If he was speaking of Old Testament prophets, you'd expect Paul to say what? Prophets and apostles are the foundation. But it is not said in that order. Secondly, in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, which I already read, this makes it clear in context that Paul is speaking of New Testament prophets. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 again. He says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, that is, Old Testament generations, was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been, New Covenant, New Testament, as it has now been revealed to his holy, what? Apostles and prophets. Same phrase, but it's clear it's New Covenant prophets being spoken about. So that is what makes up the foundation of the church, the Apostles and the New Covenant prophets. Seeing that they are foundational to the church helps us make sense of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. Why it is said that God first appointed apostles and second appointed prophets. Well, of course, they were foundational to the church. Of course, they would be first and second. Now, that word appointed, God appointed first apostles, second prophets. That, that word is the Greek word "tithemi." And Paul uses that same word a little earlier in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Let's look back at chapter 3, where we find the same word being used in a similar context to what we saw in Ephesians, a structural context. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, Like a wise master builder, I laid, there's that word, tithemi, the same word used in the passage we're looking at in chapter 12, God appointed. Here it says, Paul is a master builder, laid a what? A foundation. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay, there's that word again, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is who? Jesus Christ. Paul laid the foundation of the Corinthian church by preaching Christ. So when Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the apostles and the prophets serve as the foundation of the church, with Christ being the cornerstone. What he's saying there is that apostles and prophets are foundational in that they were the ones that God used to lay down, to teach the new covenant, the gospel doctrine which would form and govern the church. The apostles and the prophets were the ones through whom God delivered that gospel truth. So they were the foundation. In chapter 3 that we've just looked at, you'll notice that Paul said that each man must be careful how he builds on the foundation. Those who are building on the foundation, those are the teachers in the church. The third item in Paul's list that God has appointed in the church, the teachers. As the ones who do not lay the foundation but simply build on it, Teachers do not introduce new doctrine. Instead, they instruct the church in the doctrine that has already been given through the apostles and the prophets. The foundation has been laid. It was laid 2,000 years ago. When the apostle John wrote the last letter of the last word of the last book of the Bible, that is Revelation, and the ink dried on the parchment that he was writing on, the foundation of the church was completed. The doctrine being delivered by the apostles and prophets had been completed. I like how Jude describes it in the third verse of his letter. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. He says, the faith, that is that body of truth gospel truth that was handed down to you by who by God through who the apostles and the prophets and it's been once for all handed down to us how many times does a foundation get laid once once for all you don't lay a foundation build lay it again and build the whole thing will just collapse under the weight of itself You lay a foundation once, not over and over again. So we ought not to expect any apostles and prophets in the church today. And I would say that anyone who claims to be an apostle and a prophet, that you ought to quickly turn from such a person. They are not to be trusted. However, because Jude said we are still to contend for that faith which was once for all delivered, We do still need teachers, otherwise what in the world am I doing up here? We need teachers to equip us to do just that by teaching what that foundation consists of. Because no man can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, Jesus Christ. And teachers just keep re-emphasizing that week by week to you so that we can contend for it together. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 continuing to work through this list Paul goes on so he said first apostles God is appointed second prophets third teachers he says then miracles then gifts of healings that is those who performed miracles and gifts of healings these would be those gifts that had a close association with the apostles. Remember, that was part of the job description of an apostle, to perform mighty works as an attestation of the gospel that he was preaching. Anytime in scripture where you see miraculous gifts and wonders being performed, they are always being performed either by an apostle or by someone closely associated with that apostle. For example, in Acts chapter six, remember the early church was having a problem, a divisive problem where some of the widows were being overlooked in the serving of food. And the apostles instructed the congregation to set apart seven men who could oversee, making sure those ladies got what they needed. And when the congregation had presented these seven men to the apostles, it says there in chapter six that the apostles laid their hands on these seven men to set them apart for the ministry that they had been appointed to perform. And it's after that that we find two of those men, Stephen and Philip, performing mighty works, miracles, signs, and wonders. So it wasn't only the apostles performing these works, it was also those closely associated with them. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 3, we find Barnabas along with the Apostle Paul, performing signs and wonders. And when we come to 1 Corinthians, the fact that these lists that we've been working through include these miraculous sign gifts, that implies that members of the Corinthian congregation also possess those gifts. And Paul, it's interesting to hear how he speaks about that. Paul seems to view their possession of these gifts as being intimately tied to his apostleship, and that they were a seal and a proof of his gospel message and his apostleship. For example, back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, even as the testimony, that's the gospel that he preached in Corinth, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift. So his testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in the Corinthians, at least in part by the fact that they were then able to perform these mighty signs under his ministry. Their receiving of those gifts was an affirmation of the gospel that Paul had preached to them. And in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, which I already read, verse 2, Paul says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So when Paul came to Corinth and preached the gospel to these believers and they Received the Holy Spirit when they believed and they were empowered to do these mighty things. Anyone who came along and saw that couldn't point to Paul and say, You're not a real apostle. No, clearly he was because of what had been accomplished in that congregation. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, which I read already, that verse seems to locate these signs and wonders and miracles within that first apostolic generation of believers when God was authenticating the message that they preached. Now, since there have been no apostles for almost 2,000 years, I know there are websites where you can go on, pay $600 and become an apostle, but that is not what the Bible teaches. There have not been apostles for the past 2,000 years. And since that is the case... Since the gospel foundation has fully been laid down by them and has been fully attested to by the signs that God performed through them and their close associates, it is no surprise that we do not see those gifts in operation in the church today. Now again, those who claim that those gifts are in operation in the church today seem to have to try and redefine what passes as a sign and a wonder and a miracle. What are claimed as miracles today simply do not pass muster when compared with the miracles described in the New Testament. Miracles that were obvious, such as a man not having an arm and then boom, he's got an arm, or someone dead being raised up to life. These were miracles that were obvious. That were attested to by the hundreds of people who witnessed it happen. These were not miracles that were told of merely by hearsay. They were witnessed. Today's quote unquote miracles are more on the order of sore backs feeling a little better for a couple days or bumps under my armpits going away. Those are not miracles. A placebo can have the same effect. An ineffective pill given to someone to simply make them think they're better when they're not. That is not a biblical miracle. Now, I'm not saying that God does not still perform miracles today. I believe that he does. But I am saying that it does not seem to be a gift that someone can wield at will in the church today. Now, again, you may disagree with me, and that's okay. I don't want anyone here to ever change what they believe simply because I said something. I am not a prophet. I cannot speak infallibly or inerrantly, which means that when I say something, you have to check it out for yourself in the Bible. So again, I'm not bullying you to this position, but I'm laying it out as clearly as I can so that you can look into it for yourself and prayerfully arrive at your own conclusions. Let's keep working through this list in chapter 12. Paul goes on to list helps and administrations. Now, helps, they would seem to include various ministries of service where one is helping others in any number of capacities. Administrations, that was a Greek word used for piloting a ship. So this word, it refers to leadership, gifts of different kinds of leadership within the church. And lastly, Paul mentions various kinds of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And I've briefly described those in a previous message, and we're going to study them more in depth when we get to chapter 14, so I'm not going to get into it today. Sorry to disappoint. But verses 29 to 30, that's where Paul asks those series of rhetorical questions and there's the same answer expected in reply to each one of these questions what's the first question he asks in verse 29 he says all are not apostles are they what's the obvious answer no that's right no and that same no response is expected for every one of these questions and that is because God has seen fit to not give every single believer the exact same gift and why not because of what Paul has been saying throughout this chapter the church is a what a body we're not just one giant eyeball or hand flopping around our body is made up of all different parts that complement one another in accomplishing what the body has been designed by God to to accomplish and it's the same reality in the church we have different gifts different roles. We are different body parts in the body of Christ. And the gift that God has given you is not meant to be exercised in isolation from the rest of the church, just as my finger is not meant to work in isolation from the rest of my body. No, God has given you your gift to be used as a complement to all the other gifts in the body of Christ. Let's our last verse, where Paul exhorts these believers to be zealous for the greater gifts. Be zealous for the greater gifts. Verse 31, Paul says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now what is Paul commanding the Corinthians to do here? Well, that word for earnestly desire, it's the Greek verb zelao. And it comes from the Greek noun, zealos. Does an English word jump to mind when I say that? Zealos? Any guesses? Oh, yeah, sorry. Zealous, that's right. Zealous. Paul exhorts them to be zealous for the greater gifts. Now, what does, what does Paul mean by the greater gifts? Well, look down at chapter 14 and verse 1. He says... Pursue love, yet zelao, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He gives the same command, but just said in a slightly different way. But what he says in chapter 14, verse 1, lets us know that what are one of the gifts that are classified as greater? Prophecy, that's right. Verse 3 of chapter 14, what does Paul say? But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That tells us what is so great about the gift of prophecy. It builds others up. That's what makes it a greater gift. But greater than what? Greater than what? Verse 4 of chapter 14. Paul says, One who speaks in a tongue... Edifies who? Himself. But one who prophesies edifies who? The church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater, there's that word, greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So, Paul shows us that prophecy is a greater gift than tongue-speaking. Why? Because prophecy can build others up, while tongue-speaking, unless it's interpreted, cannot. Again, as chapter 14 will imply, the Corinthians were quite zealous over one gift in particular, the gift of speaking in tongues. And that's really kind of ironic because they had become zealous about the one gift that by itself could not do what? build anyone up that's the gift they became zealous about the one gift that they couldn't build anyone up by tongue speaking needed to be paired with the gift of interpretation before it could be helpful to others at all so this shows that the zeal that the Corinthians had for spiritual gifts was a selfish zeal because they'd become zealous about the one gift where they couldn't serve anyone else. They were concerned instead about their own self-promotion. If you want to attract attention, tongue speaking is the way to go. But Paul commands them in chapter 12, verse 31, to be zealous for the greater gifts. That is, to be zealous for the gifts that actually build others up. Now you may say to me, but Josh, I thought you said the gift of prophecy is not in operation in the church today. So how can I obey this command? Well, look at verse 31 again. Notice that Paul said to be zealous for the greater gifts, plural, plural. Prophecy was not the only greater gift. The greater gifts include any gifts that build others up. The more a gift builds others up, the greater that gift is. Now Paul, he definitely had prophecy in mind when he said to desire the greater gifts because at the end of chapter 14, in verse 39, he says, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly, zelao, to prophesy. So he certainly had that in mind, but that was not the only gift he had in mind to be zealous for. Look at verse 12 of chapter 14. Paul again repeats this command, but he says it in a way that makes the point more clear. He says in verse 12, So you also, since you are zealous, Zelao, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for what? the edification of the church. That is essentially what Paul is commanding the Corinthians and us to do in chapter 12, verse 31. We should be zealous, not of building up ourselves, but of building up one another. And so the question for you and me is, are you, am I zealous about building others up in their faith? Is that something I'm really desiring, and passionate about. Back in chapter 5, at the end of verse 31, Paul says, And I show you a still more excellent way. That leads us right into chapter 13, which is the what chapter? The love chapter. And not just any kind of love, agape love. Love that is concerned about others rather than self. In writing chapter 13, Paul is going to ensure that these believers do not misunderstand his command here to be zealous for the greater gifts. Because we are all quite ready and willing to be zealous for that which is greater, aren't we? But we have to ask ourselves the question, why am I so zealous over this? Am I truly zealous over this because I want to glorify Christ? Am I truly zealous over this because I want to serve others and build them up in their faith? Or am I just zealous for this because I want to make a name for myself? Does my zeal come from a devilish ambition to place myself on a pedestal so others can worship me? In chapter 13, Paul is going to show these believers and us that zeal for the greater gifts needs to flow from a self-sacrificing love that is committed to the good of others at the expense of ourselves he calls it the most or the more excellent way it's the way of excellence that our lord walked we saw that in john chapter 13 he stripped himself of his garments and he washed the feet of his own slaves and that's the path that he's calling us to follow him on If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, Jesus is calling you to pick up your cross and follow him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 says that he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life in the place of sinners. And he died on the cross in the place of sinners where he paid the death penalty for his people. And Jesus rose from the dead showing that he paid that penalty in full, that he did all that was required to save his people. And he offers salvation this morning to you. But you have to understand something. You have to understand what Jesus is offering to save you from. Jesus is offering to save you from the wrath of God that is coming for you on account of your sins and together with that inseparably bound to that he is also offering to save you from sin from the slavery of living for yourself to carry your cross means to die to yourself you cannot do anything to earn Jesus' salvation. He has done everything required to earn it for us. But you need to know that you cannot receive his salvation and hang on to living for yourself at the same time. You must let go of the one in order to hang on to the other because Jesus is the pearl of great price that in that parable the man sold everything he had to get. He couldn't hang on to everything he had and get the pearl at the same time. If you want to keep living for yourself, then you don't really want the salvation that Jesus is offering you. Because he's offering himself to be your all in all. He will have no competition between himself and someone else. He's offering himself. But if you recognize that living for yourself is wicked idolatry, and an offense against God, and if you recognize that you do deserve his wrath for that, and if you do not want to live for yourself anymore, that you want a new master now, then come to Jesus, trust in him, and ask him to save you, and you will find him to be the Savior and Lord who is just what you need. Let's pray.